Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung and glad to have you with us. If you're, uh, we, we now have YouTube, you can watch and you can also listen on the podcast. So if you're watching this, then I'm going to introduce our special guest in just a moment. And uh, if you're listening, you'll get to that, but you can't see him yet. Uh, before we get to our conversation, I want to again thank our sponsor, Crossway. As always, they produce so many good books and are gracious to sponsor this podcast. Just want to mention today the new book by Eric Ortland, Suffering Wisely and Well, The Grief of Job and the Grace of God. As uh, any Christian or pastor or ministry leader can tell you, there are always a need for good books on suffering because all of our people one way or another, are going to go through suffering. Why does God allow suffering? How do we minister through suffering? And this book in particular, Eric, focuses on the book of Job, which is very well known as a book about suffering in the Bible, but sometimes misunderstood. So this will direct us to deepen our relationship as we walk through suffering. So check that out. I am joined today by Teli Lau, who is a professor at... Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, north of Chicago. He tells me that it's snowing out his window this morning, so I wish we could, uh, you could enjoy some of this warm North Carolina air that I have here, but um, they haven't figured out how to get that across the internet yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Lau has a degrees from Stanford, Trinity, where he teaches and has been since 2008, his PhD from Emory. He served for a couple of years in the Singapore military. Then he worked in Silicon Valley. He's a very interesting bio. He's an engineer, computer engineer, has a number of patents and did that for a part of a career before teaching at TEDS. So welcome. So glad that you can be here with us. And I'd love to just have you tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your family, how you came to know the Lord, how you sure. came to TEDS. <clears throat> well, uh, I grew up in Singapore. I'm actually still a Singaporean citizen, and I'm just a permanent resident in the United States. I came to study uh, first in the U.S., and then after, uh, and I did engineering. I did computer engineering, and after graduating, I basically stayed in Silicon Valley and did uh, computer design, computer hardware. I did that for about 10 years, and then I felt that God was calling me towards some kind of ministry. And so then, uh, and so then I just transitioned to go to become a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Before that, I was actually a part-time student at Western Seminary in a campus in San Jose, and I did that for a couple of years before I became a full-time student at, uh, at TEDS. So that was that was somewhat of a major transition, you know. That and one of the reasons why I think that God, I felt that God was leading me towards that transition, was I was wondering what I wanted to invest my life in primarily, because I was designing computers, and you know it takes about four years to design a computer system. I was designing, I was working at Silicon Graphics at that time, and you know, it comes up with great fanfare. But after about two years, the computer needs an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. And after about another two more years, you know, it's time for the dumpster. And I just <laughs> wondered whether I, whether I wanted to really invest my life in something that had such a short lifespan. Mm. And I felt that I wanted to invest my life in something that had, uh, you could say, had a greater ROI, a greater return on investment. Uh, so I yeah. wanted to invest my life, I think, in terms of you know, eternal things. But there are other things that kind of prompted me towards to take that move. But that, that was some, some of the things that really started it. And yeah. I, I think that one of the things that, uh, there were certain movies that came out during that time, and it kind of prompted me towards that. I think that one of the movies that I really enjoyed well, at that time, you know, that kind of led me towards uh, taking this plunge was Braveheart. Ah, very good. Yeah, you know that uh, William Wallace, Mel Gibson, right? He plays William Wallace. He's in the dungeon and he's talking to the princess, right? And then he makes a statement, you know, that all men die, but not all men live. Mm. Meaning that all men die physically, but not all men live up to their full potential. And so I was just wondering, you know, what am I living for? You know, what do I want to be remembered for? 
then at that time, Forrest Gump also somewhat uh, appeared. Yeah, and good what 90s does Ma movies. always say? You know, Ma always says that life is like a box of chocolates. You don't oh, know right. what you're going to get. So if you don't know what you're going to get, then how do you live your life in such a way that really uh, maximizes it? Yeah. Engineering was engineering was kind of a fun lifestyle. Uh, I work at Silicon Graphics, which was one of the most fun company to work for. We had during our Christmas festival, you know, we would rent up the entire San Jose arena. And then we had Natalie Cole come and sing for us. And then we might rent out the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. And then we had Patty LaBelle come and sing for us. Huey Lewis and the News. Huey Lewis and the News yeah, came right. to campus to sing for us. So it was kind of a fun lifestyle, you know, that. And But then I was wondering, uh, what do I really want to be remembered for? How do I really want to invest my life in something that eternal significance? And so, oh, that kind of led me to to come to TEDS to study. Oh, well, that's great. Have, have you found that any of that engineering part of your brain helps you in digging around Greek and or manuscripts or doing New Testament studies, or is it just very I, different? I, I think it's probably not the technical uh, expertise itself, but it is the logical way of thinking. Because, you know, when you program something, you have to be very systematic. You have to approach a problem very systematically. And so that kind of systematic and logical way of thinking kind of filtered into how I write. And that I try to be very systematic, very clear in my thinking and try to be sometimes as concise as possible. And one of the things in computer programs is that you try to be uh, cut out the fluff, you know, try to just get to the main essence. So, so I think that that's somewhat of the engineering background that I bring into my writing and my teaching too. And and what about being uh, from Singapore? How does that shape? I mean, we all we all want to be as objective as possible right. and not have our cultures right. rise to the forefront. And yet we right. understand that that's part of who we are. Uh-huh. So how, how has that shaped? Uh, and maybe that even leads us into our conversation about the book today. I don't know if that's some of the background and your interest in this topic on shame, but just talk right. about being now bicultural, still citizen right. of Singapore, having been in the United States for a long time and how that well, affects your scholarship. It does, you know, because I think that uh, I come from a Chinese culture and within the Chinese culture, the Confucian understanding, the culture, uh, the Confucian ethos permeates uh, South Asia, permeates a lot of Southeast Asia, permeates Asia. So I think that when I approach uh, my way of my cultural mindset, is then very much Eastern. But then at the same time, you know, I've been in the United States for so many years, so that I kind of have a appreciation, I think, of the Western ethos, the Western way of thinking. And so that I'm sometimes able to see things that I think that someone, if someone who had grew up in the West, they might maybe have a little bit more of a difficult time understanding mm-hmm. and appreciating. So that when I approach a text, you know, sometimes I read it very much from a more of an Asian framework or Asian cultural ethos. And that kind of helps me to see things that may not be that uh, readily apparent. Yeah. So the book that we're going to talk about today, excellent book. I I read it last year. I thought it came out last year. I was going to put it on one of my top 10 books from 2021. And then I looked at the copyright and it was 2020. So I wish I would have seen it earlier, but it's called Defending Shame. It's formative power in Paul's letters. And you talk at the book in, in the first few pages in the introduction about how shame is almost pervasively seen as a bad thing in certainly let's just talk about American culture. And you quote several times throughout the book, uh, Brene Brown and her talk there with Oprah about shame. And she's sort of a a guru of overcoming Mm -hmm. shame. You even dropped a really good South Park reference (laughs) to uh, this episode. uh, There is no shame in my safe space. And they're singing typical South Park style. Uh, so you acknowledge shame has the capacity, I'm reading here from you, has the capacity to push us towards unhealthy, self-destructive, violent patterns of behavior. So shame, yes, you acknowledge, can be a very bad thing, and yet you've written a book called Defending Shame, which is full of a lot of good insights we're going to get to. But just from the beginning, tell us, with all that our culture says about shame 
it's terrible, it's horrible, it destroys you, you have to overcome it. Why do you think we need to, in some sense, defend shame? I think that shame it's, uh, can be toxic. Mm-hmm. It, and we've seen it how it, it can be used to destroy people, not only in the West, I think, but also in Asia, you know, that. So it, it, it's uh, toxic. You see it very much played out, for example, in the honor killings that you heard about uh, in Pakistan, various right. parts of India, various parts of the Middle East itself, where I think that somebody, if one of your siblings basically brings shame into the family, you need to redeem the honor of the family by uh, by killing. You know that. So I think shame has the propensity and I think has the potential to be destructive, but I don't think it necessarily needs to do so. And I think that once we understand it, once we rehabilitate it, or once we understand it according to how God intends it to be uh, to be used, then I think it can play an important part. The other thing is that shame is a moral emotion. Hmm. And as it being a moral emotion, you know, that then it has the capacity, I think, to structure how we think morally. And we can't really uh, cut away or dissect or eviscerate our sh- shame as a moral emotion without really destroying the other moral emotions itself. Our immoral emotions are very much all linked together. They are intricately linked together. And I think that if you destroy one, you pretty much destroy the others. And so that's why I think that we need to rehabilitate it and basically understand it according to how Scripture understands it. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, you taught, Let's circle in on your definition. You say the conclusion of your definitional chapter, mm-hmm. I thus define shame as the painful emotion that arises from an awareness that one has fallen short of some standard ideal or goal. So unpack that definition and talk about is, how is shame different from humiliation, embarrassment, and importantly, how is it related to guilt? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a huge thing. I think that shame is a very kind of a, a very slippery concept. The things that we can use shame in multiple contexts. For one thing, you know, we can make a distinction between objective shame and subjective mm-hmm. shame. So objective shame is someone who is disgraced, you know, someone who has a status uh, of not being honored, but someone who is a lower status, right? So that's objective shame, someone who uh, is just has this shame status. We can talk about subjective shame, which is more of the feeling, more of an emotion itself. So Objective shame is more of a status, social status, whereas subjective shame will be more of an emotion itself. And within that emotion, as if you understand shame as a emotion, then shame is the painful feeling that one has mm-hmm. fallen short of a particular standard. When you realize that you have fallen short of a particular standard itself, so that is the that is subjective shame. Now, I think that in the American context, we usually conflate shame with humiliation. Yeah. And the two are not exactly the same. And the thing is that shame, embarrassment, and humiliation are very closely related. They, we usually think that uh, embarrassment is much more of a less intense form of shame, whereas humiliation is a much more intense mm-hmm. of shame. So intensity-wise, I think that that's correct. But I think, let's say, for the difference between embarrassment and shame, it's that embarrassment is more of an understanding that I feel that I have been uh, misunderstood in terms of having fallen short of a certain particular standard, even though I do not believe that I have fallen short of that particular mm. standard. Shame can also, embarrassment could also be due to uh, unknown, uh, for example, attention being placed upon you. But that would be one, I think, one of the difference between shame and embarrassment, where I feel that I have uh, perceived to be fallen short of a particular standard, even though I have not really fallen short. Let me give you an example. Yeah. All right. Uh, that maybe that'll help. Let's say you're living, I'm single, I'm living uh, with a friend, living with some of my college buddies, you know, some of them who are drinking, you know, that some of more of a party animal kind of sort. And then I decided I'm, I'm going to move out and to find a place of my own. So I get some of my buddies from church to help me move. All right. So they come and help me move. And as they help me move, they see in, a, in the living room a Playboy magazine. 
And they, when I, when they perceive that, you know, that they may think, oh, am, they may think that I'm reading that, but I know that I haven't read that. So they may have perceived me to be doing so, but even though I have not really done that, you know, that the emotion that I'm feeling would be embarrassment rather than shame. It was somebody else's magazine got left there. Well, you don't know how it really. Yeah. Right. So it's not uh, it's not my own failing itself, but I'm perceived to have that. So that would probably be understood as more of an embarrassment rather than uh, it rather than me actually understanding that I am falling short of that particular standard. It, in, and that's it's helpful even when words overlap and humiliation, shame embarrassment people use them interchangeably and it's not that we have to go around and know you you use the wrong word but i think what you're saying is really important because we live in a day where uh, words are devalued and definitions are devalued and in particular on some of these very difficult issues where we like to borrow the the weightiest term mm -hmm. the, right. the term with the most gravity mm -hmm. and so if I, you know, use a, a you know typical kind of embarrassment situation, I'm walking up some stairs and trip, and you know I'm, I'm walking up into the pulpit, and whoops, I slip and I catch myself. That's embarrassment. Um, That's right. It wasn't a moral failing. No. You know, people maybe snickered. People aren't mm -hmm. going to go home and talk about that. We use that as embarrassment. It's lesser in intensity. It doesn't have a moral component, but there's a tendency. That as I feel bad if that happens, and I want to, I want to make that situation of the utmost gravity. I start using other terms and talk about mm -hmm. humiliation. I talk That's about right. the intense shame that the whole congregation put on me. Right. And it's not that the words aren't related, but I think you're very right to say let, let's let's be careful and let's know what we're talking about here when we talk about shame. One one of the questions I have, I'm really curious, Dali, how you would you would answer this because I hear all the time that it's typical in even many pastors will say it just as a, an aside. They'll say the East is a very shame based culture, but we in the West are different, and so we need to understand. You know, we don't understand certain dynamics of their culture because we're not shame based. And I'll just give you my my take on that, and you tell me if you think I'm right or wrong. I, I think you know you've defined shame as a painful emotion arises from an awareness one has fallen short of some standard. I don't think that's an Eastern thing or an Asian thing. I think that's a human thing. So I think people in the West have just as much shame, but maybe the difference is we, we don't we don't feel that in the same way or. The, the community standards are often very different. So just stereotyping in, the, in Eastern cultures, Asian cultures, maybe there's much more of a, you've let down the, the community or your family, and there's a sense of shame, whereas Western prizes the individual. And so there's not mm -hmm. the same. So I think we look at that and we think, ah, the West must not be uh, have to deal with shame. But anyone who spends time on the internet which Absolutely. may not be a good idea, yeah. <laughs> can see there is complete shame there. That's how Twitter often functions, is to shame somebody. You said the wrong thing. You liked the wrong person. You didn't say the right sort of words. That's often what these shibboleths are about, is shaming people for doing the wrong thing. So I'm not convinced that the West doesn't deal with shame, but I certainly think the way it appropriates it and the sort of structures that communicate it can be very different. So how do you explain what is different and what is is not different about Western and Eastern understanding of shame? I think it's uh, every culture has both shame and guilt. And, and Kevin, you're right, you know, that when you take a look at social media itself, that's so much uh, online shaming that's going on. Even when you talk, taking a look at back in the past during the Puritan uh, time mm -hmm. itself, there was a lot of shame baits on punishment that's going on, you know, think like a towering, 
thing like cat tailing, you know, and all those things. That's, that's right. Shame based kind of a thing. Stocks and putting you in the you know. stocks, yeah, in the community. Right. That's shame. You know, like the Scarlet Letters, uh, kind of a thing. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne Scarlet Letter thing, you know that. So that it's a lot of shame. I think that uh, that it's very much pertinent. I think in, in the Western culture. So I think it's a rather a matter of degrees. You know mm. that every culture has both shame and guilt, but rather it's a matter of degrees. I think that one of the things why we think that uh, the Western culture it's more of a guilt base is because we think it it's more individualistic, right? Rather than uh, the Eastern being more, I think, a communal or communitarian thing, you know that. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why, because we think about individualistic, so therefore it's more of a guilt base, you know that. Whereas uh, Eastern culture is more of a communitarian, so therefore shame-based. But we find that it's uh, actually a mixture of both, and which one we do emphasize uh, one or the other. Yeah, you think about Paul uh, writing his letters in prison, and he'll say sometimes, you know, they visited me, they were not ashamed That's of right. my chains. Uh-huh. Right. And for us, we think, well, you know, what's what's the big deal? You're going to visit somebody in prison and you bought brought them some books or clothes or you brought them uh-huh. some food. But often these were very public settings. You had to come and you know slip them some some food and mm-hmm. people could see you're identifying. Now from our safe cultural distance, feels like, well, surely I would go help my brother, this Christian right. leader, and give him some food and visit him. I wouldn't be ashamed. But then you think, what would that what would that be like in our day? It might be somebody who's uh, just take an accusation that really lands on people. No one wants to be accused of, say, being a racist or being sexist or any sort of things that our general American culture would say. No good person that's right. is like that. Yeah. So that's sort of Paul. He's getting labeled with those things. In fact, he's there in prison, and you can imagine. Yeah, a lot of us would myself included, we feel like, I'm not sure, maybe I'll do this in the middle of the night and help yeah. this brother mm-hmm. out. Because uh, even if I don't think he's guilty of, of these things, a whole lot of people do, and my association with him is going to bring shame on mm-hmm. me. I That's think right. one, of, one of the powerful things about your book is once you open this category up, it really is amazing there's a lot of this in the New Testament and a lot in Paul. He does his moral formation and mm-hmm. talks a lot about shame, good and bad. Why do you think we've we've missed this? Or at least maybe in America, we've missed this. What, why do we instinctively think shame is bad, don't have anything to do with it, when Paul has a much more nuanced view, and there's actually a lot in his writings about the danger of shame and the power of shame for moral formation. How have yeah. we missed something that's really quite prevalent? I, I think, you know, going back, you know, the whole concept of honor and shame, that basically runs throughout the entire Bible, all the way from Genesis, you know, where Adam and Eve, after they sin, they hide right. themselves because of mm-hmm. shame. Genesis 2 talks about they were naked and they did not feel any shame. And so shame then is seen to be the effect of sin. And then if you go all the way forward to Revelation 21, you know that, and to the new heavens and the earth, new heavens and new earth itself, nothing shameful will enter into that city itself. And so you see that within the book ends of scripture itself, all the way from Genesis, all the way to Revelation, uh, shame is a fundamental understanding. You could say it's, it's a thread that is seen to be unpacked within the biblical narrative uh, of redemption itself. But getting back to your question in terms of why are we so resistant, I think, or maybe a little bit hesitant, mm-hmm. I think that it also boils down to why we consider shame to be something so negative, is that we have very much fallen into a very much of a therapeutic culture itself. And so that uh, everything is really to make you to feel good about yourself, mm-hmm. how to feel validated, how to fulfill your potential, you know that. And so because of this, and you know, Christian Smith has really talked about this moralistic therapeutic deism mm-hmm. thing, right? And so because the whole ethos is really to fulf- make you fulfill, you know, you have to be you, you have to be true to yourself. You can't let other people say anything that's negative about you or crimp your potential let it go, frozen, you know, that <laughs> yeah, right. whole thing. 
And so because of that, you know, then we are very much averse to uh, talking about shame or even to noticing shame because shame fundamentally it's the whole evaluation that you've fallen short of a particular standard. Mm -hmm. It's that Mm -hmm. sense of feeling and it's a very painful feeling. And it basically cuts at, you could say, cuts at one person's identity itself, all right? And so we think fundamentally that uh, shame destroys a person's self-esteem. It destroys right. a person's self-esteem. And so we think that that's, a, that's totally bad, that's negative. And so we try to then minimize that. Uh, so one of the things you talk about is the relationship between shame and the conscience. So I want you to talk about that, but let me set it up this way. Uh, I've thought a lot about this, and I'm not sure I have a a real good solution to this dilemma, but a related concept to shame is a stigma. A mm-hmm. stigma is really something that your group or society or network of relationships places a high degree of shame. So it used to be that, I mean, it, whenever you watch these like my wife likes to watch old British dramas. If they mm-hmm. wear costumes and they have British accents, she wants to see it. You, 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 you watch some of these period pieces, and there's often this theme of, well, these two people don't love each other, but they can't get divorced, which is very strange for what? You can't get divorced? Well, no, because there was a tremendous amount of shame, and you, you couldn't be a person in polite society and get divorced. Or somebody had a child before they were married. And this was an illegitimate child there and it had to be hidden away. There was a tremendous amount of shame. So in one sense, as Christians, we feel this, you know, right sort of compassion. Right. Wow. I don't want someone's, someone's life to be utterly ruined because they had sex before they were married and they had a child. And now the rest of their life, they have to be a second class citizen. We have compassion. We want people to have forgiveness or, you know, in our day, a lot of that, these shame questions have to do with feelings of same-sex attraction. I think there's a desire we have. We want to show compassion. We don't want people to feel like you're consigned to be a second-class Christian for your life because of this. And yet, you know, take the example of a child born out of wedlock. Society was doing something useful, even if sometimes the individual uh, was not treated with respect or compassion or forgiveness, as a whole, society was doing something to communicate to everyone their shame in this. And in that particular case, it was a shame that was connected to a moral sin. So how do we uh, understand shame is so powerful, stigmas are so powerful, and most, most people in America would say, we don't want these stigmas, we don't want this shame, or even I'll bring it back here to the conscience. Even the sort of people sometimes talk about the the ick factor or the sense in your conscience, I shouldn't do that. That just doesn't seem right. That's not always reliable, and that Mm -hmm. can lead us into a bad way. And yet, if we completely cut that off, how God made us with a conscience, and if we say society itself has no role in policing some of those boundaries. I mean, society is doing that all. We have lots of taboos, lots of things that our culture says you shouldn't do, you shouldn't believe. It's just that they're changing from Christian to sort of post-Christian. How how do you help us as Christians uh, think about shame, the conscience, and society's role in policing some of these boundaries? Yeah. I think, you know, one of the better way to approach that, Kevin, is, you know, to go back to one of the questions that you talked a little bit earlier, is the distinction between shame and guilt. Mm. So, for example, like Brene Brown, you know, she would say that shame is totally bad, but instead of shame, guilt is good. Shame is maladaptive, but uh, guilt is actually useful. Mm. The usual way that people distinguish and psychologists distinguish between shame and guilt is usually three ways. First one would be in terms of uh, shame focuses on one's identity, one's self, whereas guilt focuses on the act. Mm. So, for example, you know, uh, shame would be I, emphasis I, I did that thing. Whereas guilt would be I did, focusing Mm. on doing Mm -hmm. that thing itself. So the shame focuses on the self, guilt focuses on the act. But the distinction between 
act and identity, while it is good in theory, it's very hard in practice. Mm-hmm. It's very hard in practice itself and to bifurcate it. And in fact, you know, Jesus say you know them by their fruits. You know a person's identity by their act itself. So identity and act are very hard to separate. Right. All right. The other axis would be in terms of the external or public versus private. So shame is public in that, as you mentioned, it's other people that are policing you. Mm-hmm. Whereas guilt is really in terms of you yourself policing you your, yourself. It's your own conscience that's doing it. So that's why people usually uh, tie conscience to guilt here. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that you can be very ashamed even if you are alone. When Even when you That's are right. with nobody around because you have internalized what other people are thinking about. And that then becomes your own standard. All right. So in that way, you know, the public versus the private dimension collapses. All right. So in, in that way, uh, it's almost the same. Now, the other factor, the other axis in terms of which shame and guilt is different in that guilt is usually tied to moral and then shame is tied to both moral and non-moral. And I think that that is true, that you can be, for example, ashamed because of a certain dyslexia that you have. You, know, right. you go up to read scripture and then you are stumbling over the words because of dyslexia. But we would never consider that to be a moral failing, even though right. you might be ashamed of it. So I think that there's all these three axes that differentiate mm. between shame and guilt here. And, and for me, you know, I think that shame and the conscience is very closely related itself when we understand uh, shame is a broader category because shame can be both moral and non-moral. So that right. when we understand uh, the failing to be caused by uh, as, a, as a moral factor, then in that way, shame and conscience are actually the same. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Now, when you come and ask about the thing about the public in terms of enforcing it, is that good or is that in in terms of it, it is bad? You know that. I think that one of the reasons why is that uh, guilt is usually considered to be autonomous. Mm-hmm. That means it comes from your own internal moral standards. Shame is typically considered to be heteronormous. It's based upon other people's moral standard. But what scripture is telling us is that shame should be theonormous. And that Very the good. standard for honor and shame should not be based upon society's standard of honor and shame, but should be based upon God's standard of honor and shame. So this then brings up the issue that there are different courts of opinion. There is the public court of opinion where everybody's telling you, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. All right. But then there is the divine court of opinion, God's court of opinion, where God tells us what is right and what is wrong. And so that we should be living our lives according to the divine court of opinion rather than the public court of opinion. So shame, rightly understood according to scripture, is theonomous. It is based upon God's perspective of who I am rather than society's perspective of who I am or rather my own perspective of who I am. So I think that that's a very important distinction. Yeah, that's that's really, really good. So not autonomous, that it comes from the self, but theonomous, that it comes from God. And once you have those categories, you can see so often what the Bible is doing. You think of famous Paul's words in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Absolutely. He's saying there there is a shame that the world around him would have that this is this how can this save people and this isn't very intelligent it's not sophisticated i but i am not ashamed of the gospel and yet to use your example that shame you could be all by yourself you know take the example you gave earlier you know somebody looking at pornography you could be marooned on a desert <laughs> island for 2 years and and somebody could guarantee no one will will know anything you do. You're there (laughs) and you go and, you know, you look at things, these magazines, but you know, there's a God, or at least you should know that there's a God. So even if society, there's no society around you and nobody's going to know about it, 
it's not just that you've internalized other people's expectations of shame. That can happen. But if we live all of life, you know, quorum Deo before the face uh-huh. of God, then it's also we're right to internalize God. So, right. so much of the Christian life is exchanging misplaced shame right. that we shouldn't have for the right sort of shame that means to form us. And uh-huh. then just to be clear, God doesn't want us to live in shame. He wants us mm-hmm. then to be forgiven and to change. Right. One of the things you, you you mentioned this in your book, I'm, I'm reading through, I've been reading through Ezekiel in my morning mm-hmm. devotional time. And of course, Ezekiel 16 is a hard it chapter is. to is. read. It's just so uh-huh. graphic. And the Lord, I mean, it, it, it's amazing to think if this were just written today, people would say, what sort of, this is, you you can't do this to someone, but of course, God has a purpose and a loving purpose for Israel, uh, for Judah, and He says you've spread yourself to every whoring god, and and you didn't even pay them like a good prostitute, mm-hmm. uh, or they didn't pay you, you paid them, and then He just really says because you were you you say it this way because you were shameless, I'm going to multiply your shame over and over and show to the to the nations your lewdness and your nakedness and and strip you bare mm-hmm. how, how would how would we preach that how would we use that really hard passage like Ezekiel 16 that if we're honest there's part of us that feels like is god really doing the right thing is god bullying mm-hmm. somebody what's going on how do we appropriate that in the right way. Understanding right. God's God, and, and we're not, so we don't have to act that way. Thankfully, we're not judging the nations. But take a passage like that. What are the dangers, but what are the the benefits of mm-hmm. that sort of take toward moral mm-hmm. formation? Right. I think that Ezekiel 16 passage is so, so important, you know, that uh, Jerusalem... There is talking about the southern, uh, southern country yep. there, southern nations there. Is that it engages in uh, immorality itself? It basically, uh, you could say that she's an adulteress. She has a few, uh, associations with other gods, and so then God, in His mercy, judges Israel and judges Jerusalem itself and brings upon the curses of the covenant. The curses of the covenant are then meant basically to put shame on her. Mm-hmm. And if she rightly feels the shame, all right, if Jerusalem rightly feels the shame, then she would then repent, experience remorse, and experience contrition and return back to God. And that should be the typical paradigm of right. how it should work in terms of the Deuteronomic blessings and the curses. But in the case of uh, Jerusalem itself, it's so sad that she is so hardened that even though God puts these shaming judgments on her, she doesn't experience the shame that she needs to experience in order to to experience this, uh, to turn back to God. But then at the same time, it is because of God's mercy that God identifies with Israel so much that he then feels ashamed of the shame that Jerusalem is experiencing. Is that we, because God connects so much with Israel, that she, he feels the shame that Jerusalem feels. It's just that, you know, if, uh, if I have a relative who is a sexual offender, mm-hmm. then I would feel ashamed because I am connected with that, uh, with that person. So in the same way, because God still holds to his covenant with Israel and does not give up the covenant. So God feels, you could say he's embarrassed, he's ashamed of the disrepute that's brought upon him. So then he acts unilaterally and then rescues uh, Jerusalem itself. But then what's so significant in Ezekiel is that after uh, Jerusalem has been brought back from exile, she experienced shame mm-hmm. for what she has done. And the fact that she experienced shame for what uh, she has done is because God has given Jerusalem a new heart, a new heart to know not only Yahweh itself, but also to know herself. And that new heart that is that basically causes this uh, reconfiguration 
so that it is able to bring about this uh, perspective that she has. She is the recipient of the grace that God has given uh, her. And so I think that that's a Ezekiel is a very beautiful picture in terms of how God's grace ultimately rescues us from our hard heartedness and then causes us to be able to recognize how uh, far we have fallen short. And when you bring it back to, into the New Testament itself, is that shaming, when we, for example, experience shaming judgment, the only way I think that we can be able to understand uh, the how far we've fallen short is because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, convicts us in terms of how far we've fallen short of God's standard, and propels us to to approach God for repentance. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like what you said there, and it's really important that the normal pattern with the Spirit's operative in our life, that we feel this shame for something where we've really fallen short of God's standard, and then we repent, and we're mm-hmm. supposed to experience the freedom of then walking with God. It seems like uh, as Christians, we understand shame is a powerful negative emotion, and we we don't want to live in it. The world also understands shame is a powerful negative emotion. We don't want to live in it. But uh, part of what's so good about your book is you're saying there's really many different things we can do with shame, and our world tends to just give one answer, which is don't don't appropriate that shame. Don't embrace right. that shame. Those are other people's standards. Maybe guilt. We do mess up. We do things right. that are wrong. But their sort of way of getting rid of the shame is to say, those people shouldn't be putting shame on you, or, mm-hmm. or you're a good person. It really wasn't you who did it. It's not your identity. So they're really shame alleviation strategies. Mm-hmm. But what we find in the Bible is either if it's misplaced shame, then you need to train yourself to say, okay, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You think of Jesus, he despised the shame that was before him. So that's one strategy. Uh, But other times we are meant to say, I feel this negative, painful emotion right now. And now the world says, well, whoever is making you feel that negative, painful emotion, they have a problem. That's right. But actually the Bible says, well, that could be the case. It could be their problem, but it could be also an indication that God is convicting us of sin mm-hmm. Absolutely. and using this pain of shame so that we say, I don't want to be humiliated, and so I'm going to repent of this. That's right. Yeah. Be, if we have, as you said earlier, a, a thoroughly therapeutic understanding, we'll take painful negative emotion and we won't we won't stop to think god may be using that painful negative emotion to show something in my life and then to get me to repent and to change yeah. and how I, how have you helped people see this and i i think that one of the things you know getting back to this is that we don't need to feel shame for the sin that we have done when we turn towards god yes when we turn towards God, it is because Christ has taken away our guilt and our shame on the cross. Right. You know the cry of dereliction of Jesus on the cross, and that when Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the shame of exile. The shame of exile that Israel was experienced, the shame of exile that Adam and Eve experienced when they were kicked out of the garden. Mm-hmm. Christ has taken that shame upon himself. And so therefore, we do not need to experience shame before God anymore. On the contrary, you know, that because of what Christ has done, we are adopted as sons. And if we are adopted as sons, that means we have the honor that comes as being children of God. And so I think that that is one of the things that the painful experience of shame, it shouldn't just lead us to just, oh, I'm so bad, you know, I, I, can't, right. I can't do anything about it and just become totally uh, a basket case. But rather, it should propel us to towards contrition, towards remorse, propel us to come towards God. It should drive us towards God because only He can be the one to give us the honor that we need. 
we cannot gain any honor on our own. Only Christ and only God is able to do that. So it should it, propel us towards God. And, and so often it seems like we, even as Christians, we approach shame without going through the the one remedy for shame, which is That's right. the cross. Absolutely. That, yes, it is, uh, first of all, an atoning sacrifice for our guilt, and we <laughs> learn all the expiation and propitiation, right, all right. the right terms, but it's also a substitution for our shame. When you awesome. look That's at, right. say, Mark 15, mm-hmm. preached to that passage a number of times, and, and Mark doesn't focus on the 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 blood and the guts and the gore to mention another Mel Gibson movie like The Passion. He doesn't uh-huh. focus on that. But what he focuses on is he's being beaten, he's getting the crown of thorns, he's getting right. the cloak, he has the passerbys, he has people deride him. What mm-hmm. what is all of that doing? It's showing all of the shame mm-hmm. that was heaped upon him. Definitely. And so we're meant when we have this painful negative emotion, genuine shame for genuine sin. To say, you know what? Know what it feels like. I deserve. I deserve to be spat upon. I deserve uh-huh. to be mocked. Right. I deserve. And our world says, no, no, no. You, you, you don't deserve any of that. But I think the gospel says, you know what? In our sin before God, mm-hmm. we do deserve that. But here's the good news: you, That's right. you don't have to face that. Mm-hmm. Christ faced that. All that you deserved. That's right. And it seems like we're healing our people lightly by not really taking them to say there's a remedy the remedy for shame is not just to push it aside and say you shouldn't feel that way but to say you don't have to feel that way anymore because of what Christ did yeah i think it's important that when we usually understand the gospel story usually uh, tell it in terms of guilt in terms of the wrong that you've done but i think that you can also tell the gospel story in terms of shame in terms of honor itself and I think that that somewhat seemed to be, uh, it's a biblical theme, a biblical thread throughout, uh, basically from the Old Testament to the New Testament itself. And Romans actually talks about this shame and honor so much. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, talk about Romans 1, what is sin? Sin is not glorifying God. Not, That's right. Not glorifying God. What is the result of sin? Is that shame. God hands them to over to shaming judgment and that they fall short of the glory of God. And so you could tell the gospel story in terms of honor and shame categories. And I think that that, uh, it would be so powerful in Mm -hmm. certain countries, especially where honor and shame is such such very important categories. Uh, Just to give some of the, the categories you do really helpfully, in the book, you talk about Paul and retrospective shame, mm-hmm. looking yeah. back, and you talk about his shaming rebuke of Peter, uh-huh. his shaming rebuke of the Galatians, and then these verses, which we can so easily miss, 1 Corinthians 4.14, I write these things to shame you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.5, I say this to your shame. So what is Paul doing in some of those passages dealing with retrospective shame? I think that Paul, it's that... Uh... For the Corinthians, you know, they are so hardened itself. They are not amenable to gentle rebuke, to correction itself, that Paul then has to take a much more drastic step. So he's ratcheting up his counsel. Yeah, he doesn't start with this. He doesn't doesn't launch in, I want to shame you. He Mm -hmm. he tries to guard it, but yeah, keep going. Right. So he basically, that when they are resistant to instruction itself, or when the choices that they make, I think, are so fundamental uh, that it all will almost lead to their moral destruction itself. For example, like the Galatians, you know, where he says that you foolish Galatians, you know, that in those certain cases, then Paul registers up the, I think, his counsel, and then he begins to shame them. So that by shaming them, you know, that he is trying to evoke the, the feeling within them. And this, if when uh, this feeling itself should hopefully cause them to realize that, hey, maybe what I was thinking was not the right way to think about it. The values that I had was not the right values. So that there's this, you could say that this cognitive dissonance in their mind, and with when there's this, this cognitive dissonance in their minds, you know, then they begin to say that maybe I should pay attention to what Paul is mm-hmm. saying, and that maybe his values are right. 
And so therefore then look at it from a different perspective. So the painful emotion hopefully would enable us to have a different perspective. We will see things from Paul's perspective rather than the perspective that we have held for so long. So I think that that's what, that's what Paul is trying to do. But when Paul is doing that, you know, causing them to have this pain itself, he's doing it in a very, I think, in a very carefully God mm-hmm. way. He's doing it coming from a perspective of someone who is their father. Right. And so it is then very much different from humiliation itself. Hopefully it will be different from humiliation. Because if I am humiliated, I basically think that the person has it out for me. He's out to destroy me. He doesn't know who I really am, you know, that, and that I don't feel that this is justified. So that's typically in terms of what humiliation is. But because Paul has planted this church in Corinth, he knows them. He has uh, labored with them. He is so, I think, so deeply in love with the church mm-hmm. and what he wants the church to be that he says difficult things. And faithful are the wounds of a friend, mm-hmm. what Proverbs says, right? And so Paul is basically uh, putting it, I think, telling them in very harsh terms the danger that they are facing if they continue on this path. Yeah, and that's really insightful because... You know, just to use our, you know, current example, it, it's not as if Paul's launching onto the internet indiscriminately That's shaming right. whoever he can. These are people that, yeah, he is a spiritual father figure to them. They know of his care. They've had a, a rough relationship uh-huh. at times, but it, it's more akin to, you know, me speaking very hard words to my son or daughter to say, this is not who we are. This is not what we do in our family. Mm -hmm. I can't believe you've gone back to this. Then it is to launch with shame. Shame is sort of a last resort. Even go back to Ezekiel 16. It's not that the Lord launched into that uh, justifiable harangue upon their first sin. This was years and generations Mm -hmm. of recalcitrance that now... That because it is such a powerful emotion, it's it's not where we start, but sometimes it's where you have to end. If the the gentle entreaties don't get anywhere, you really uh-huh. need to help someone see their sin and the shame. And and you do a good job with not only looking at Paul in retrospective shame, but then you call it Paul in prospective shame. So that's looking forward, and you really point out things that we can easily miss. You know, the, the Philippians, for example, it's really saying, well, here's Christ's story of humiliation and exaltation. What is your story going to be? And are uh-huh. you living and following Christ in such a way, living honorably, shining as stars among a crooked generation? Or you talk about how often Paul, in that little letter of Philemon, is trying to persuade Philemon to welcome Onesimus back. And he's really using language of honor and shame so talk about how does Paul use this prospect of future honor or future shame right. to try to motivate you, us? You know, the thing, Kevin, is that we tend to think that honor and shame are opposites. Mm. Opposites. But in the ancient world itself, honor and shame, they are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Meaning that you can't have honor if you don't have an appropriate sense of shame. If you are, don't have this propensity, this you could say this fear of having fallen short of a particular standard, you won't be able to gain any honor at all. And so I think that uh, for Paul, that you know, in order to have honor, in order and even honor within God's perspective, we must have this proper sense of shame where we will not want to do anything that will bring shame to God, where we will not want to bring any. Do anything that will bring shame to the church, bring shame to Christ, or bring shame to our fellow brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. or even to bring Mm -hmm. shame to ourselves. Because we want to have the honor that rightfully comes from God. And so I think that we need to understand this uh, this thing. The the difficulty is that in the English language, you know, the sense of shame. And shame is almost tends to be seen as two different words itself. Mm-hmm. Or modesty, we tend to think of sense of shame to be modesty, and then shame to be uh, just its uh, detrimental effect itself. 
But in, in the Greek language, they are one and the same. They are the same word. And so the same word does double duty for both. And I think that for us is that we have to develop this dispositional sense of shame uh, so that it then becomes a hedge. Mm-hmm. It becomes a hedge to us. And this developing this dispositional sense of shame is really developing our conscience. That our conscience functions as a hedge, hedge so that we do not do things that would fundamentally uh, dishonor God. So I think that that's, uh, we need to do that. We need to instill that, I think, within the church itself. We need to instill that within our family that uh, we have to maintain the honor that rightfully comes from God. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, uh, we just have time for a couple more questions. So uh, before some wrap-up, let, mm-hmm. let's go here and maybe pick one of these topics because uh, in the second half of the book, you took you look at the Pauline concept of shame and then you put it alongside two other theories of shame. Uh, reintegrative shaming theory, yeah, RTS, uh, not RTS, that's my seminary, RSD, <laughs> uh, very different, and then uh, Confucian. So um, take one of those and your interest there and how it is alike and different from right. the Pauline concept of shame. I'll take the one by uh, the RST, reintegrated shaming therapy, and I, I think it's somewhat helpful. And that is actually insights gotten from criminologists itself. And they recognize that uh, in order to really to bring down the offense, you know, the, uh, the level of crime, that the criminal or the offender really needs to feel shame for what mm. they've done. They need to recognize that what they've done is wrong. Otherwise, if you just slap a punishment on them, you know, then they will consider that to be the expense that they need to right. uh, to pay in order to maintain their criminal lifestyle. So there needs to be a sense in terms of where they have uh, they recognize that they have done wrong, and so so John Braveway he comes up with this uh, reintegrated shaming therapy or theory that tries to d- distinguish between shaming in two ways: reintegrative shaming and disintegrative shaming. So disintegrative shaming is shaming done by people who do not know you. It, it's permanent, and it then basically destroys you for who you are. Mm-hmm. Whereas reintegrated shaming is done, shaming done by people whom you trust, people whom you, are, who know, whom you know that they love you, and where the shaming is basically held for a much shorter period and that after that period in which you have, uh, I think, experienced remorse, then you are brought back into the community. So it tends to hopefully reintegrate you back into the family. And this actually reintegrated shaming is done by various, uh, for example, by the Maori people in New Zealand. Mm. It's done by more in terms of a tribal communities because they recognize that they can't permanently take somebody out of the community, but they can do certain sanctions on the person Hopefully the person repents and then slowly bring the person back into the company. And so I think that when Paul, in terms of his, uh, when he shames actually people, it is more reintegrative than disintegrative. Mm-hmm. It is really that he shames people only whom, uh, who he personally knows and has personal relationship with them. And that is for a limited time and with the intent to restore them. So shaming here is more meant to be redemptive rather than punitive. Hmm. The shaming punishment is meant to be redemptive. The shaming discipline is meant to be redemptive. Yeah, that, that's really good. And even anybody watching this, listening to this, dealing with their own shame or maybe helping a loved one with shame, just some of those categories, you think, is this shame that I'm feeling, is it coming from people who don't know me? That's so right. this is just you know, some Instagram account or somebody that's out right. there I don't know, I don't have a relationship with. Are they, do, are they interested in a redemptive arc in reintegrating uh-huh. me or is it really right. disintegrative is, is it really to destroy me to take me down if yeah. so that's probably some some shame that we ought to push aside and despise that shame uh-huh. and yet because we have so much of that people sometimes say well every kind of shame Absolutely. is disintegrative yeah. so you ask yourself is this negative emotion coming 
from people close to me. Now, people close to us can get things wrong too, but but do they try? Are they trying? Uh, do they really? Do they have a track record of loving me, of caring like, about me, of wanting what's best for me? Are they going to be? Are they eager to welcome me back into this community mm-hmm. rather than their goal is to push me out? All of those yeah. things help us process. Is this shame something that's I need to despise, or is it something mm-hmm. that I need to own because it's mm-hmm. leading me in a good direction? Or it can. Here's yes. how you you end. The book you talk about three contemporary challenges so maybe just speak to one or all of them but just say a little bit about how we face these contemporary challenges one guilt not shame is the better moral emotion these are challenges this is sort of how our world understands it so one challenge is a lot of people would say well guilt but not shame second challenge people say shame is manipulative it's illegitimate it's abusive mm-hmm. third uh, shame is toxic. It destroys self-esteem. It leaves a stigma. It's a, it's an attack. And you argue for uh, a rehabilitation. You, so just speak into those three challenges. We've touched on them already, but guilt is the better emotion. Shame is manipulative. Shame is toxic. What's right about those uh, assertions? And then how do we also need to change those assumptions? I think that one of the things is that uh, it's, Shame, it's a very difficult thing to grasp, especially because the emotional lack seems in one culture doesn't really map to another culture. Mm. So that when Paul actually talks about shame itself, and, and also very much in the Greco-Roman world, the mm. understanding of shame really encompasses our modern understanding of shame and guilt. And so I think that that's one of the, uh, one of the difficulties here is that you know, we tend to think that uh, shame and guilt are totally two different things. But in the, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, it's usually one under one umbrella, one concept here. And so that's why I think that when we think that shame tends to be destructive in terms that shame destroys a person's identity and that you can't do anything to, uh, to undo it, mm-hmm. for Paul, that's not right. Because for his understanding of shame basically encompasses both guilt and also shame. So that's, that's one of the tricky things in terms of trying to, uh, to understand it. But when you take a look here in terms of uh, shame being toxic here, and I think that for us, we tend to think that the absence of shame is self-esteem. Hmm. But for Paul and for the Greco-Roman world itself, the absence of shame is shamelessness. And so it is then very much important to understand that how we have to supplement that, I think, with a biblical understanding of shame. But also that when Paul deals with shaming itself, you can see that it's very different from the online shaming that we see. So that for Paul, shaming cannot be done and shaming cannot exist without empathy for the person. Mm. For Brene Brown, you know, she would say that shame cannot, uh, cannot survive with empathy. Shame cannot survive with empathy. So that if you put empathy there, the shame will just melt away. But for Paul, shame cannot exist without empathy. And that empathy is needed in order to do this shaming properly. And that you need to, basically, when you have this shaming judgment, shaming punishment, shaming discipline itself, it's done with tears, it's done with much prayer, and much dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bring about a change in the person. And so I think that those are some of the fundamental things that are important for Paul. Oh, that's good. Uh, thank you for giving so much of your time. Uh, just again, Defending Shame, It's Formative Power in Paul's Letters, published by Baker Academic, uh, Dr. Lau, professor at, of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Tali, thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this book. I really encourage people. It's a, it's a really fine work of New Testament scholarship, mm-hmm. also interdisciplinary with uh, you know, reintegrative shaming theory and also Confucianism. There's theological components, but it's also just good uh, if you can get through all of that. 
there's really good practical. How do you counsel people? How, how do That's how right. do we live? You know, this can help us have good conversations with our kids who are constantly dealing with, is mm -hmm. this a good shame or a bad shame? So you deal with it in a very nuanced way. It's not a celebration of shame. Yay, it's good, but mm -hmm. it's defending in its proper place that we shouldn't remove it, but rather rehabilitate it as a uh -huh. really key biblical idea, God-given function for our moral formation. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for the book. Keep up the, the good work at TED's. And thank you to everyone who's uh, listening. And until next time, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book.